Hello, and welcome to The Real, the podcast for culture and entertainment media. I'm your host, Mark Olson. On today's episode... We're back with some more TV and film recommendations for you and your family while you're spending some extra time at home. Our team is still self-isolating, staying home as well, so we want to be sure to keep checking in with our entertainment colleagues to see what they're watching and what they might suggest for all of you. So later on, I'm going to call TV critic Robert Lloyd to talk about what he's been watching, as well as two shows he recently reviewed, the new FX on Hulu sci-fi series Devs, and HBO's drama The Plot Against America. But first, I'm going to call up LA Times film critic Justin Chang, who has some lighthearted comedies he wants to recommend for anyone who feels they need a laugh. So let's give Justin a call. Justin, are you there? Hello, Mark. How are you? Thanks for making a little time for us today. My pleasure. If it's one thing we have, it's time. I don't know about you, but I, you know, so many people are writing recommendations, what to watch, what's on streaming, all those kind of things. Do you find that your viewing habits are changing? Are you watching more stuff right now than sort of normal times? Yeah, I am trying to watch more, and I think I am. You know, I'm trying to do at least one movie per day, which doesn't sound like a lot, I guess, for us, but is when, you know, you still have work to do and you have, uh, you know, in my case, a a three-year-old. So it's like just trying to keep everything manageable. I'm sure I'm in the same situation as everyone. But yeah, in the main, though, it's funny. Um, I feel like my viewing is a lot more fragmented than usual. Like one of the wonderful and terrible things about having so many streaming platforms is that you sometimes are just like toggling between them. Like I am right now in the middle of finally catching up on succession so i watch an episode of that and then i shift over to something on criterion channel and then i shift over something on amazon it's ridiculous this kind of add-esque sort of viewing strategy which um you know is definitely a a byproduct of uh when you're just streaming movies and tv shows nonstop. how about yours yeah i'm like you i'm trying to make myself watch a movie a day if possible but then i mean i have this problem just generally television programs kind of get in the way of my movie watching. So I'm trying to like keep up with my shows and then at the same time be watching movies. And it's funny for as much as I feel like I should have more time right now. I mean, we're still working. I mean, our, in some ways, like our schedules aren't that different. It's just more locationally what's different right now. So I don't necessarily have like a ton more time to just be, watching stuff. And the one thing I've been doing personally to just sort of clear my head is I have been making an effort to like read books, like, you know, that stack of books that's like been staring at you. I don't know if you're like me, but like I have this huge stack of books that I always am intending to read. And some of them it's like years go by and you don't read those books. And so I'm like, I'm somehow trying to like, this is going to be the time I'm going to read those books. Mark, I too, newsflash, am reading a book. It's great. (laughs) It's like, where has this been all my life? (laughs) <laughs> I'm reading right now The Chill by Ross MacDonald. Mm. I'm trying to read. I, I love mystery novels and have never read Ross MacDonald, who's one of the greats. And so this is a Lou Archer mystery that I am determined. To st- I'm just reading a few chapters a day, and it's a very, it's a definitely a page turner, so it's not hard to do. And it's something, 
I think it's important for us, you know, I mean, watching movies and, and TV as well is our, is our, is part of our job. And we, even though we have more time for it, it's, it, the temptation is just to get lost in that. And we need to, we need to read, we need to get out and walk and, you know, keep from going completely crazy. <laughs> and now along those lines, you know, it's funny, last week, Jen was here to uh, talk about horror movies and horror movies as a way to sort of like compartmentalize your anxiety and maybe focus the feelings of confusion and upset that you have. Uh, but you have sort of chosen a, a different tact. You've decided to have a list of, of comedies to watch for us this week. What was it that made you want to make a list of comedy suggestions? Yeah, I had actually written a piece in The Times recommending 14 movies for readers to stream at home I tried to do a mix there of horror and doomy, despairing movies, but also lightness and, and joy. But I had a reader actually write me and tell me that it was still too, too like apocalyptic a list and said, please recommend some, some comedies. We need them. And so I am, this is for that lovely reader. I decided to do a list. Uh, and the, the five that we're about to talk about, none of them are, on that other, are in that other piece that I wrote. So they're completely new. There's just so much to watch. So I figured I'd do a completely fresh list of happy, cheery movies that, you know, always leave me feeling lighter. And so what's, what's the first on that list? Okay, I'm going to list these in chronological order of uh, release. The first one is one of my favorite movies of all time. This is The Lady Eve, Preston Sturge's great 1941 romantic comedy starring the great Barbara Stanwyck in one of her best performances. And also the great Henry Fonda. And I think he is just as important as she is in this. I mean, their dynamic, their chemistry is just so great. I mean, it's funny. A lot of people, you know, a lot of people really love bringing up baby Howard Hawks's movie. And I'm actually, sacrilege, I'm actually not one of them. And in fact, Hawks himself, I think, critiqued that movie saying that it's just pitched at too high a level of mania. Both the lead characters are insane. And what I love about Lady, The Lady Eve is that Henry Fonda is the sane one. He's the dope. He's the, you know, the, 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 the chump. And he's one, it's just one of the great all-time chump performances. And he is just, you know, completely just putty in Barbara Stanwyck's hands. And this movie is just so funny and so charming and so romantic, so sexy, too. This is on my all-time list. I need to rewatch this one. And where can people find that one on streaming? This one, like all my picks, are on many different streaming services. And this one is listed as being on YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, Vudu, and Amazon Prime. The Lady Eve. And so uh, what's your next selection? Next one, uh, jump forward 26 years, is Playtime, Jacques Tati's 1967 film, which I have not seen, I have to say, since in maybe about 10 years. So I am definitely overdue for a rewatch. And I saw this in glorious 70 millimeter at the Arrow Theater in Santa Monica. And it really should be experienced that way. You know, this is a movie that, like a lot of movies, but especially this one, is diminished, I think, by the home viewing presentation because you have these gorgeous, brilliantly choreographed images where you're watching these bodies, how they move through space, you know, people have likened Tati's movies and especially Playtime to a kind of, you know, where's Waldo aesthetic where you can just kind of, you're watching like kind of cross sections of society interacting and, you know, clusters of characters rather than individual characters interacting. It's, it's a great kind of like movie about social flux and how 
groups of people interact. And that's partly why I wanted to choose this movie for this list, because I think as we're social distancing, you know, we crave and we yearn for the days when we will again be able to, you know, get in people's faces and, you know, be together as a society. And so this one just seemed like the snapshot of you know, a time that is no longer at this point, we are not able to experience. I know I also have had the distinct pleasure of seeing Playtime in 70 millimeter. I saw it at the American Cinematheque's Egyptian Theater here in Los Angeles. And a lot of people are talking about, you know, in this moment, as we're social isolating from one another, and it does seem like, you know, watching things via streaming at home has become the obviously the dominant way to see things. Do you have feelings about what that means moving forward? Are, are you afraid at all that people won't return to theaters when we're on the other side of this? Or do you think that people are going to really suddenly realize everything they, they enjoy about that experience, that they miss about that experience when they can't have it? I think the answer is going to be somewhere in between. And I do think this is going to change. Something permanent is going to change about the way we view movies. I'm not entirely sure what that's going to look like. Um, it's just, I mean, it might be as simple as how many theaters are going to reopen. But also because Playtime in particular, I don't care how big your screen is at home, like there's just nothing quite like seeing that in a theater. I mean, Tati's, you know, brilliant use of screen space, his use of sound. I mean, it's just like seeing that movie in a theater is just a distinctly unique experience that you just simply cannot replicate. You absolutely cannot replicate it. I should note this movie is showing on uh, Amazon Prime, iTunes, and the invaluable, invaluable Criterion channel, which you should absolutely subscribe to if you are not doing so already. Just an absolute treasure trove of world cinema and movies like Playtime. And it's funny, Mark, again, if I can be a little sacrilegious, on the one hand, it's like, forget watching it at home. On the other hand, I would like to see, it's the kind of movie I wonder if, I, I almost recommend people put this movie on in the background, like like a like a screensaver or a Yule log. Because, and this is not, this is terrible, I know, this is not how you should watch and appreciate this movie, but I think there's something very comforting about this movie in that way because it is a reminder of all those things that we were talking about, about you know people gathering together in, in this busy hive you know, of a society that is just functioning and operating. And I think that there are worse things you could have on in the background. It's a great movie. Watch it when it comes back to a theater near you that is open near you. But uh, but give it a try at home, too, if, um, you know, if you've never seen it before. And so what is your, what's your next pick? Tampopo. This is a movie, a Japanese classic, that I actually watched with my wife just a few nights ago, actually. I'm not sure if I'm going to pronounce his name correctly. Uh, Juzo Itami's uh, 1985 celebration of food in all its combinations and permutations and, and pleasures. One of the ultimate all-time food porn movies up there with, you know, Babette's Feast, uh, like Water for Chocolate and Eat, Drink, Man, Woman. And it's centered around um, a woman who with some, you know, very persistent help is trying to turn her, you know, low rent ramen noodle shop into a world-class ramen restaurant. Well, no one less than the uh, the late Jonathan Gold, the Times much beloved food critic, called it the greatest food movie ever made. He did. And uh, I think are we up to uh number 4? What what, what I have two what, more, yes. Two more. Um, these ones are more more recent. Uh, number four is uh, Richard Linklater's wonderful School of Rock mm. uh, from 2003, featuring, I think, Jack Black's greatest performance ever has, has a, a sad sack. Well, not really a sad sack because he's one of the most 
ebullient and happy and funny characters you'll ever meet in a movie who basically kind of cons his way into a job teaching at a private school and he cons his class <laughs> into serving as his his rock band. You know, this movie has become, of course, I don't even give, give a plot summary, this movie has spawned a musical, it has spawned 15 years later concert reunion tours and such. I mean, this movie, I should know too, for some reason... I did not really like this movie the first time I saw it. It just, and I don't understand why that is because I am such a Linklater fan. I think I just had a bad night when I saw it because I then watched it and have watched it like a hundred times since then. And I absolutely just adore everything about it. That's my number four. Should I go on to my number five? Your fifth and final selection for us? The World's End. Edgar Wright's comedy starring uh, Simon Pegg and, you know, the whole gang, Nick Frost. This is, you know, sort of completes um, a loose trilogy that started with Shaun of the Dead and continued with Hot Fuzz. And this might be the least known and for me least appreciated of the three. And I picked it because I think a lot of people are revisiting Shaun of the Dead right now because zombie comedy, you know, in, you know, end of the world kind of comedy. But this one is the one that has always sort of meant the most to me um, when I first, starting from when I first saw it back in 2013. I was expecting it to be good and funny, but I think it's kind of a masterpiece, actually. It might be my favorite of Wright's movies. It is sort of proudly defending our right to be, you know, mediocre and slovenly and and just human in the face of this race that wants to wipe us out and, you know, in in kind of an invasion of the body snatchers kind of way. And I remember just sitting in in a near empty screening room watching this and just cackling to myself, like just laughing myself stupid at this movie. And walking out feeling, you know, oddly comforted about the state of humanity. And so there are worse things one could watch at this point in time. Uh, there certainly are. I mean, it's it's funny. The movie has actually kind of popped up recently. It's been memefied in a way where stars of the film, Simon Pegg and Nick Frost, and the, the filmmaker Edgar Wright, have had to sort of discourage people from this meme that's been circulating about, uh, that basically says, I'm, I'm going to just go down to the pub and kind of wait this out. And that obviously is not the thing one should be doing in this moment of social distancing. It's interesting that the movie, you know, is about friendship and and being together with people. But it's so that's like maybe not the actual physical getting together is not the thing to to take away from the from the movie right now. That's a very good point. And don't go out and get drunk with your friends. Stay home instead and watch this great movie about friends getting drunk. So, yeah, (laughs) precisely. And so where is uh, The World's End available? Where is that streaming? A lot of these are streaming on the on a lot of the same platforms. Tampopo you can watch on Criterion Channel, YouTube, Google Play, Vudu, and iTunes. School of Rock is on Amazon Prime, Vudu, iTunes, Google Play, and Hulu. And The World's End is on Amazon Prime, Vudu, YouTube, iTunes, and Google Play. Well, Justin, thank you so much. I know I think this is a great list of films to sort of raise people's spirits a little bit. For the most part, get their minds off of things. And uh, and so thank you for uh, joining us and, and putting this together for us. Thank you, Mark. And, you know, at the rate things are going, we might have to do it again soon. And so moving on, we're going to give a call to Times television critic Robert Lloyd. Robert, are you there? I am here, Mark Olson. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome, Mark. And so probably like so many people right now, I think you're probably being asked a lot what to watch, what you're watching, 
things like that. So give me some idea of what are some of the things that you've been, you yourself have been watching or have been, been recommending to people? One thing is we're in a kind of a slightly slow premiere cycle right now. So there's not a lot of splashy new content that's coming out. So there's a lot of old favorites that I tend to go to if it's available, if you can find Slings and Arrows or Detectorists or other shows that have given me a lot of pleasure in the past. I'll certainly uh, say that. Around the house, if we're just trying to not think too hard, we watch a lot of British panel shows, shows like QI and Would I Lie to You, which are sort of extremely clever, mostly comics, but also just clever people that are kind of known in British life. Game shows, quiz shows, talk shows all mixed together, but they're just extremely funny and they really let people shine. Now, there, there are two shows in particular that you've written about recently that I've been very eager to, to talk to you about. Devs, which is on FX on Hulu, and then also The Plot Against America on HBO. Both series in different ways, come on like they ha- they are making big statements and they are trying to really say something, you know, both in an artistic way and in, I think in, in sort of a societal way about us and how we live and how we are moving forward in this world. And so maybe to take Devs as an example, created by Alex Garland, the filmmaker behind Ex Machina and Annihilation, and it's set in this kind of Silicon Valley tech world and it becomes something of a, an existential mystery. Does that show have something to say about the bigger picture of kind of who we are and where we're headed? Devs is more interesting to me, not on in the big picture aspects of it, which have to do with multiple universes and quantum physics and determinism versus free will. And a lot of Garland's things, films do sort of take on these big big ideas is in the the smaller more human passages which come kind of rarely in in a very long very slow very visually exacting quite beautiful on a just on a sort of sen, you know a level of sensuous sensation it does make you think about everything in, in this world is so designed that you just makes it makes me think about the guy that nick offerman who plays a, a tech billionaire the people that he just hires and says yeah we're gonna we, we need to build this uh this sort of research laboratory but make it look really cool and kind of gold and shiny and you know at the center of it there's a supercomputer that just looks like a piece of sculpture that you would see in a uh, in a gallery it's actually in a vitrine like a work of art but the show comes alive to me in these sort of weird little moments that just have to do with people acting like humans to one another and they happen rarely in that show the show is so involved in this kind of bigger picture thing and also in the sort of very slow moving thriller because you don't really know what's happening and uh and there are people that are out to stop other people it's it's too easy to be spoilery about it but there's this there's a scene toward the end where nick offerman is speaking to another character uh, and they're not speaking about anything crucial at all they're just talking about kind of stuff and then they play some frisbee and it's so unlike everything else that happens it just makes you feel like what matters are are not these big ideas so much as people and how you get along in the world not to give too much away but there's a kind of a pre-apocalyptic sense to the show and we're in a pre-apocalyptic time and one thing that's interesting in films and fictions about and, and in the way that 
we live in and might live in a time when you're there's a, a heightened consciousness of the end because the show is about de- determinism and the idea of whether you can know everything that's going to happen. The question of is how does that knowledge, if you have it, how does that affect the way you act as a person in the world? And so we've seen a lot of shows over the years in which in movies in which people do know that the end of the world is coming. And the question is, what do you do in those times? And it's a question for now is, a, is like, how do we act? in these extraordinary circumstances? How do we lead lives that are fairly normal when everything else is crazy? And these things pop through these sort of bigger uh, bigger elements in the show, and I find them very interesting when they arrive. I wasn't a huge fan of it. It's very beautiful. There's some lovely performances in it. I think like a lot of his, Kex Machina, as I said in the piece, is like a James M. Cain novel. You know, it's really, it's in a, in a sense, it's a pot boiler with these big ideas. Uh, attached to it and this is more like a hitchcock film with these but a really slow hitchcock film with very seriously thought through ideas uh, attached to it i think that you know garland must spend a lot of time reading about science and science philosophy and you know there's definitely a lot of name dropping of uh, theorems and things like that in the series it didn't really move me though except in these small moments that you kind of had to wait for and then with regards to The Pot Against America, that is a, an adaptation of a novel by Philip Roth that's been made by David Simon, who, of course, is best known for The Wire. And it uh, imagines what would have happened, this sort of alternate history of America, if Charles Lindbergh had run for president in 1940 and been elected and had then sort of turned America into kind of an anti-Semitic state. It's certainly not hard to sort of like see the allegory and what the story is is presenting, although I know when Roth wrote the book and, and as the show has been ramping up, David Simon's been talking a lot about how it was not intended to be about sort of like our direct now, although it, you can't not watch it in that way. And how do, how do you feel about that? How did that show work for you? David Simon made the show for a reason. I mean, Philip Roth wrote it during the Bush II administration and for reasons that were not specifically related to that time. There aren't specific parallels to to that era. He was really thinking about his own past and his own life. The the book is actually written, it reads as a kind of a memoir come history. uh, And there's a lot of detail about where he grew up. And there's a lot of of accurate historical detail that has to do with the, the Jewish neighborhoods of New Jersey, the time and the historical context. Uh, that does switch at a certain point uh, where the alternate timeline begins. But it's a lot of it's the main character of the book, thinking back to what it was like to be a Jewish kid in the late 30s. David Simon and Ed Burns made a choice to make that, to adapt that book now. And so they have their own set of intentions. And I don't think that you can read them as anything but a comment on on where we are now. Uh, we're living in a time of Renaissance anti-Semitism. We have a president who, like Lindbergh in the in the book, is essentially he's not a politician. He's a he's a cult figure. There's a hero element of hero worship that that supersedes and swamps people's view of policies. So a lot of the things that start happening after Lindbergh becomes president, programs about uh, sending urban youth out to the country, these things that have to do with assimilation. Uh, can seem to people who it's not affecting is very benign. And eventually what happens in the book is uh, that things turn violent and ugly. So 
I think that this was very much on his mind. Specifics of the story are, of course, their own, and they, they do follow the book mostly. They kind of deviate a little bit toward the end, I think, to make certain points, because in Ross' book, history kind of recovers itself. In the series, I think they want to leave, they want to make people a little less comfortable at the end. They don't want to they don't want people to feel like, oh, yeah, everything's going to be fine and everything's just going to go back to the way it was at some point. And I think that's also the reason, one of the reasons maybe why they decide not to use a narrator, which seems to very obvious. If you read the book, narration is so much a part of it that you really wonder why it's not present. I don't think the show is completely successful. It has some really nice performances in it. Zoe Kazan is at the center of it. She's really wonderful. Winona Ryder plays his aunt. Uh, they do they do nice work. The kids in it are all really phenomenal. The period work is really, really nicely done, but it's also becomes very melodramatic at times. The show itself is kind of hammers home its points uh, repeatedly, and there's not it doesn't relax enough to give you enough of a sense, I think, of the of normal life being slowly changed. There's still reasons to watch it. I wouldn't like many shows. I wouldn't say don't watch it. You know, if you're interested, give it a look. And now the Times TV team, you recently published something that was kind of a series of, of recommendations for people. And I think one thing that you picked was a show called Miss Fisher and the Crypt of Tears. I have to confess, I've not heard of this show. What, what is that? That's the name of a film, a feature length kind of a sequel to a series. The show had been out of production for a while, although it's in the way that television works in America, it's actually feels like the current show, available through Acorn TV, which is a streamer that specializes in things from England and Australia and Canada. And the show is about, it's set in the 1920s in Australia, uh, in Melbourne, Australia, and it has a, Miss Fisher is a glamorous, gallivanting, sort of, you know, accidental detective who gets involved in a lot of murders and solves them. And she's sort of a glamorous bohemian socialite. In the piece, I said she was a cross between Miss Marple and Auntie Mame. And they're a lot of fun. And this one is a kind of a feature-length version set in the, the Middle East in London in 1929. And it's very Indiana Jones. There's a, a funny jewel and a curse and murders and a country house. And anyway, it's it's quite enjoyable. It's not a high caliber piece of filmmaking, but it's like a lot of B pictures. It's just as good as it needs to be good entertainment for these times and and I, you know I was a fan of the show I think I've seen most of this most of the old episodes as well and you mentioned as well I think it's a it's a web series called Crash Course it is a series on YouTube that was uh, created by John and Henry Green who are the vlog brothers and they're both well-known young adult novelists as well the vlog brothers was a series they set up on YouTube, maybe about 15 years ago or so, where they would, it's an epistolary, epistolary web series in which they would address each other, and they still do, you know, in by addressing each other, they're really addressing their listeners and their viewers, their fan base. And they talk about all kinds of things, but Crash Course specifically is set up as a kind of an online university series about history and science and philosophy and all kinds of economics, all sorts of things that are hosted by a variety of hosts. You know, if you're looking to keep your mind active in a way that also involves watching a screen, I would recommend these highly. And you had also mentioned to me uh, another series that I had, I had not heard of before called Doc Martin. Is that another mystery show? 
Yeah, I wrote about Doc Martin in, we did a big roundup. Matt Brennan, our TV editor, put together a giant roundup of TV recommendations where he enlisted the input not only of the Times people, but of TV journalists from the wider world. And my choice for that was a show called Doc Martin, which has been widely available over the years in America. It's been kind of a favorite of non-commercial broadcasting stations like PBS affiliates tend to pick it up. Uh, the new episodes, again, are Acorn TV. It's pretty widely known, and it's a show set in a fishing village in Cornwall. It's contemporary, and it's about, it's kind of like a sort of northern exposure. It's about a, a London surgeon who, he becomes the GP in the small fishing village where he had been as a child. He has developed a, a phobia of blood, so he can't operate anymore. He is also a sort of a very stiff-necked it's not that he's non-empathetic exactly, it's just that he's no-nonsense to a, a high degree. He's sort of out of place in this quirky village of eccentrics. Anyway, there's a love story that goes along with it that's a kind of a strange love story, given that he's he's so emotionally constricted with a local school teacher. The timeline of the series is actually shorter than the, the many years it's been on because they tend to pick up from where the last episode left off. It's just a wonderful, sunny show. The reasons I recommended it, some of them had to do with the situation we're in now and that it's a show about listening to your doctor for one thing and take listening to the science and you know quite often the characters will have ignored advice and gone on and done something that makes them sicker in the end and everybody gets saved eventually which is also a nice thing to think of in this time and you know robert every time i talk to you i always enjoy so much that you not only will be naming shows that I haven't heard of, but frequently also platforms that I haven't heard of. I feel like you've given us so much to uh, to watch and to, and to think about and uh, some shows to really discover. So I really thank you for taking this time to talk with us today. Thanks. That's it for this week's show. Thanks to our producer, Paige Heimson, and our audio engineer, Mike Heflin. Subscribe to The Real on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review. You can also visit us at latimes.com forward slash the real.